Decarbonisation offers a huge industrial opportunity. It's a once in a generation chance to increase growth and future prosperity using electricity and green hydrogen and sustainable low carbon fuels and pedal power to invest in new jobs across the country. There is a need for urgent action, which is a catalyst, but it will also deliver a better, cleaner local environment and really modernise our economy. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm Richard Howard, the Research Director at Aurora Energy Research. On this episode, we'll be discussing how to decarbonise transport. What does a net zero transport system need to look like? And what are some of the key enabling technologies? Crucially, what does government need to do to accelerate this shift? And how do we ensure that no one is left behind and the costs of this transition and fiscal impacts are manageable? I'm joined today by um, Trudy Harrison, MP, um, who was elected a Conservative MP for Copeland, in 2017 and appointed as Parliamentary Under Secretary of State at the UK Department for Transport. So in this role, she's responsible for decarbonisation of transport, as well as a host of other really important policy areas such as air quality, the future of freight and also autonomous vehicles. So thank you, Minister, for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much, Richard. And it's Trudy, please. Okay, thank you. I wanted to start actually by um, talking about your your life before politics and your your motivation for for getting into the world of, of politics. I understand that um, earlier in your career you you started off working um, at the Sellafield nuclear site, um, and you also worked um, for a period of time on sustainable community projects um, with renewables um, investors. Is energy and transport something you had always wanted to to get into? Was that an an active decision? Yeah, it really, really is. And I suppose I'm following in my father's footsteps, um, albeit in a way that is quite different. But he started out, um, I think, quite early with ICI Wilton over in the uh, you know in the northeast and then went to work on oil rigs in the north sea and came back to work at sellafield so i started at sellafield when he was there and really i've grown up talking about poly, you know um, power systems and engineering and that kind of thing and my husband's been in the nuclear industry for 42 years he's a welder my father-in-law was a metallurgist two of my daughters are working in energy now one in nuclear and one in renewable energy as an electrical designer. I've got four daughters. Um, And um, it's really something that we just talk about in West Cumbria with a great sense of pride because of Sellafield, because of what the nuclear industry has done, you know, to decarbonize right across the world, because of our understanding as well about power systems and engineering and all that comes with it. But Um, I also recognised that I wasn't satisfied with the energy policy, particularly around nuclear. And that was a real motivation for wanting to get down to Westminster to try and change things. Just before I was an MP, I worked with 
sustainable communities. I actually uh, did a foundation degree in sustainable communities when I was about 35 at Salford University. I became very interested in what Sweden was doing, particularly around district energy, closed loop systems. And we tried to implement that kind of a system in my own village, which is in the Western Lake District. It's off gas. So we suffer from fuel poverty and transport fuel poverty, energy fuel poverty, or all of that um, side of things. And try to find a way to convert this small off gas community with 700 and something residents living in 325 households. And it was when DEC was um, up and running, I submitted a bid for about 40,000 for a feasibility study into how we could do this across residential, our local school, our residential care home as well. Um, sadly, we didn't get all the way through, but it really opened my eyes to the potential of community owned energy of district energy, and most importantly, the power of people to be able to do things. But in order for that to be successful, we need the policies that allow those can-do people in communities who know their area best to get more involved. That was very much um, you know, a personal insight into my world in West Cumbria, tiny little village uh, called Bootle, not to be confused with Merseyside Bootle, which is very different. And I am living the dream in this job now to be still so involved with the nuclear industry and policy making. Um, we've just got the regulated asset base out of the commons and into the Lords for some final discussion um, as a constituency MP, but then to be tasked with the future of and decarbonisation of transport in a ministerial role is an amazing combination to have. I, sadly, I lost my dad last year, but I wish he was you know, able to see what we're doing. And I wish I could just call him on a night to tell him I really miss that. But he'd be very proud, I know. No, it's a fascinating story and um, actually very, uh, very inspirational to hear you you talk about uh, about your your transition and, and um, move into politics um, in that way. That it really comes through your your sort of pride in, in what you've managed to um, achieve. You mentioned you have four daughters. Um, I was interested in this. Um, how do you manage to to balance uh, busy home life with your political career? Your time spent away from home in in Westminster yeah. that must um, throw up some challenges. Uh, it's a very um, popular question, and I would say it's down to the fact that I've always been a busy, busy mum. I was determined that I would work, you know, whilst having children. And when I had our first daughter, Gabrielle, there was no real childcare that um, suited my needs. I very much wanted her to be brought up around animals and countryside and that kind of thing. So that was the reason why I left Sellafield and I opened up a childminding business which grew into a children's day nursery. I had four children in five years and took on a team of staff who also looked after other children. And there was an ethos. We had goats, guinea pigs, rabbits, hens, lovely garden. It was a wonderful time. And um, it was a brilliant way for me to work but also to be a part of my children's life. And really, I suppose, when the, the children all got up to school, um, then I became more involved with the community. I became a, a school governor and learned that this school that had been at the heart of our community since something like 1829 was threatened with closure. 
And that led me to join the parish council where I learned actually it wasn't just the school that was threatened, it was the whole village. We'd lost 20 businesses in 20 years. And that led me to join the community action plan team. And that is where I learned about fuel poverty and the effects on energy on a local community. So in terms of the children, I've completely uh, diverted there. They're <laughs> older now. So they're 18, 20, 21 and 23. They're independent. They're all uh, driving uh, and they're all incredibly interested in this agenda. But it is because of their independence and my wonderful husband, Keith and a good supportive network of family and friends that I'm able to do this job. And it is a privilege, absolute privilege. Um, they are the motivation, um, but they also are a good grounding and they tell me how it is without <laughs> any you know, need for me to ask for their opinion whatsoever. Great. No, it's a brilliant story of how, how you've managed to um, to further that political career. I wonder sort of how your work as a as an MP um, has evolved um, during COVID. Um, so many things, so many aspects of our lives have changed. But um, how has it affected your work and your life? Yeah, generally, I would actually say it's been for the better. There have definitely been some silver linings in the way that we're able to connect the way that I'm able to speak to you now, Richard, and also um, fairly swiftly meet up with people from all over the world, actually, to have a conversation. I was the Prime Minister's PPS throughout the um, pandemic. So I actually did come down to London throughout. Um, and then when I returned for Fridays to carry out constituency work, that would be predominantly on Zoom. So, you know, I've missed my wonderful lakes and mountains um, and visiting people in their businesses, certainly through 2020. Um, that was something that I really did miss. But in terms of being able to work and use Zoom and Teams, various other platforms, I think that's revolutionised the way that we can connect with people all over the world. And I think it's been a really good thing. But I do think there's a balance. There's nothing like, you know, face-to-face -face get together or a visit to go and actually meet with the apprentices and the engineers and the people behind the research and development, developing new fuels for the future for aviation and maritime and you know, there's just no alternative to test driving a Ford Mustang Mach-E in real life, putting it through its paces on a test track at Millbrook. But a hybrid version, I think, works very well. Yeah, well, I want to bring us on to uh, electric cars, and um, that's really the the thrust of um, quite a bit of the conversation we're going to have. So, and um, maybe if we start at the top, obviously. Um, decarbonisation of transport is is the the topic for the podcast, and that is your your ministerial remit. And just to chart a course of of some of the the key policies for for listeners to be aware of, and um, we had a transport decarbonisation plan and um, published by the UK government in July and um, twenty twenty one. I think that was just before your your time coming into um, the role, Trudy. Um, I interacted with your your predecessor, Rachel McLean, a bit through um, the Net Zero Transport Board um, on that one. And then we've had the Net Zero Strategy, um, which included a significant chapter uh, and some new policies on transport as well in, in October, just after um, well, you came into the role. So just thinking sort of top down about that overall transport decarbonisation plan, um, how are we going to get 
the whole of our transport system to net zero or just about net zero emissions? What, what do you see as the key enabling technologies? Well, that is a very big question. And you're quite right. The um, real landmark plan, the Transport Decarbonisation Plan, was launched in July. So I was very fortunate to walk into a new role with a fantastic team, a fabulous Secretary of State in Grant Chaps, who's really ambitious and who'd really got the department, you know, to, to come up with this plan. And it was just before COP as well. So in, in order to prioritise, because you're right, it's a huge task. Net zero by 2050 is a huge task. But when transport forms so much of the, the, the reason for decarbonising because of the emissions that predominantly come from cars and vans, um, that is where the priority is. Um, road vehicles actually represent about 91% of UK domestic transport emissions. So removing those is the key. And that will bring host of co-benefits as well and I think it's really important to set that out it's also about better air quality it's about less noise it's about really high skilled jobs and growth it's about leveling up um, but the key policies are driven by the prioritization of where to start for the greatest impact and that's why we're ending the sale of all new non-zero emission road vehicles by 2040 which includes the ending of the sale of new petrol and diesel cars and vans from 2030. And from 2035, all new cars and vans must be zero emission at the tailpipe. Um, we're also introducing a zero emission vehicle mandate, and we're ensuring that the infrastructure matches the vehicles leaving the factories, because that has got to happen in order to meet the demands of the users. So that's the kind of priority for road vehicles. Um, you know, we're yeah, also maybe. looking at aviation, maritime, and I've just taken on a new role, which is very exciting, as the Minister for Active Travel. So we're also investing in cycling and walking as well, and in public transport, we've got the National Bus Strategy. Um, it's where to start, though, and that's why yeah, I decided brief. on that that phase out of petrol and diesel cars at 2035. Yeah, so maybe we, I will plan to go through a few of those different topics. Maybe if we start with the cars, um, cars and the vans, and if we have time, um, we can talk about the aviation and the actual active travel, which I'm very interested in as well. Um, but coming back to the cars, so you mentioned... Um, we've obviously um, got the policy to ban sales of new petrol and diesel um, cars from 2030, plug-in hybrids as well from, from 2035, and, and also phasing out sales of um, non-zero emission um, trucks, buses, etc. as well. And we've got the zero emission mandate. There's also sort of a lot of tax um, incentives around this. I've, I've been looking into EV uh, EVs myself and company car tax um, scheme is is very favorable from a from a tax perspective you're not paying road tax and there yeah. were grants although the, these have been largely sort of phased out or sort of more focused on the um the relatively um cheaper cheaper models now I mean, a key question for me in all of this is is really how we make sure that pe that no one gets left behind and um, so I think it's quite interesting how if you look at the sales of the electric cars, I mean, many of the electric cars are sort of £40,000, £50,000 and more. The Tesla Model 3 is the sort of second fastest selling car um, during 2021. That's, you know, forty to £50,000. But there's a large proportion of society who 
you can't afford a £40,000 car. In fact, the top-selling car is still the Vauxhall Corsa at, at £15,000 from, um, from research I was doing. So how, how do we make sure that this is not just something for the affluent people who can afford a Tesla and get loads of tax perks, and it's actually for, for the many, not just for the few? Well, yeah, it's really important to me personally. I live in an area um, which does suffer from poverty and post-industrial decline. And um, as I'm really challenging officials, we have street upon street of terraced housing. So ensuring that no driveway is no problem is really important for me. I think, you know, working with um, the leasing companies, um, is also really important because not everybody buys a new car straight out. There's no uniform approach to decarbonisation. And, you know, each place in the UK has its role to play. And I think we do need and are developing a people-based and place-based solution to ensure that we meet the, the target. But in transport, local and regional level organisations are often best placed to make the decisions. And it's back to, you know, that ethos I have that can do people in their communities know their area best. So we are going to be working increasingly closely with local authorities, but we're going to be developing ways in which the local authority itself can assess their challenges. It might be around um, better disabled access for charge points. It might be around recognising the the um, lack of driveways that people have and therefore needing to have a, a better public charge point infrastructure. We're not doing too bad. We're nearly up to about 28,000 public charge points, but we probably need 10 times that amount. I think at the moment we've got around about 5,000 of those public charge points um, are rapid. So we are doing really well. But you're quite right to point out that the early adopters are those people who can most afford it. And the places that we really need to decarbonise often suffer from some market failure. And that's why we need to intervene. So the different decarbonisation solutions will work best in different places. We know that. Um, and it's one of our six you know, strategic priorities for emission reduction. There are huge benefits to a place based approach. And it will have a really important role to play in levelling up across the country as well. Uh, we haven't talked about hydrogen yet, but that's another factor. And when I think about my dad going over to ICI Wilton, which I've recently visited, you know, that kind of area, the Tees Valley hub and the northeast, where we have such a rich industrial heritage in chemical engineering, those areas could really benefit as we make our villages, towns and cities and everywhere in between cleaner, greener, healthier and more prosperous places to live as well as bringing jobs to areas outside of cities. That's a big focus for me, living in a small village and often feeling that we were nobody's political priority for decades. That's changing. That's really, really changing. No, that's that's really good to hear. I mean, yeah, I don't. Maybe we don't have time to get into the detail. I always think that um, one of the challenges is around um, the many households who who don't have off street parking. You, you mentioned just before, and what the mm. charging solution is is for them. Maybe another whole conversation we could have uh, about that one. And um, what one other kind of big picture issue though I did want to talk about is around what this means um, for the UK's fiscal position. 
And it's something I've been interested in for a few years now and wrote a paper on this um, a few years ago in, in my previous role at Policy Exchange. But my observation was a simple one. We raise a lot of money and the, the Exchequer raises a lot of money, about £35 billion a year through fuel duty and road tax. And that is very much predicated on on the kind of conventional vehicles is taxing fuel um, and taxing cars and vans that, that use fuel. But if we move to um, like there is strong incentivization for for people to use electric vehicles, they don't you know we're not paying a fuel duty on on the electricity in a sense, and the road tax is, is zero for those cars. Is there a risk that that thirty five billion evaporates over time, and um, and if so, where where does that leave the UK's sort of fiscal position? It's a huge sum. What 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 is kind of the? I, I'm always interested in this kind of what's the future of road taxation in a world of of lots of zero emission vehicles? Do we need to hike the taxes on those zero emission vehicles at some stage? And and if so, how does that play out for the early adopters who only got their electric car because it was sort of um, tax efficient in a sense? Yeah, yeah, it's a, a really important question. I'm going to develop some slopey shoulders and say that any changes to the tax system are a matter for the Chancellor. But you're absolutely right to note the amount of money that we are pumping in to support the decarbonisation um, revolution and this renaissance of um, transport is very expensive. Two and a half billion pounds. Uh, I think it was 1.9 billion in the, the spending review of 2020 and a further 620 million this year. And as we move forward with the transition to zero emission vehicles, we really need to ensure that the tax system encourages the uptake of EVs, which is why we have all those incentives from company car tax incentives to the plug-in grant and also the incentives around the infrastructure. So I think it's £350 towards a at-home charger. We've got incentives for workplace chargers for local authorities, up to £13,000 for local authorities to install charge points. That's all incredibly costly. And we need to ensure that the revenue from motoring taxes keeps pace with this change to ensure we can continue to fund a first class public services and infrastructure that people and families across the UK absolutely expect. But I'm going to uh, finish with the fact that changes to the tax system are a matter for the Chancellor. Okay. And we have you know, no much. intention to introduce road pricing. Uh, you know, it's, it's a matter for the Chancellor and I'm going to leave absolutely. it there. Because it's not my comfort zone. Not, not your, not your brief. Well, hopefully, uh, maybe I'll uh, invite Rishi uh, Sunak on the podcast next. Then I um, think that's a marvelous yeah. idea. <laughs> and, you know, I think uh, Treasury have been incredibly supportive of you know, it's more money than we've ever had. Incredibly yeah. supportive of this um, decarbonisation journey, and that is because the Prime Minister is so supportive. I mean, when he set out his ten-point plan for a green industrial revolution, I was his PPS at the time. Such excitement, particularly around point three, which was a commitment to small modular reactors, advanced modular reactors and large scale gigawatt plus nuclear reactors. But, you know, so much of that was around transport as well and commitment towards hydrogen and the renewable energy. You know, the wind and solar, the, um, the power that we'll need for this transition from fossil fuels to a decarbonized transport system requires vast amounts of clean energy and it is the prime minister who has set the tone the treasury has followed suit my secretary of state grant chaps has come up with the the policy and i've 
walked into a role where it's about delivery and project management is one of my favorite things. So 2022 is the year of delivering this transition. A raft of different consultations on freight, um, aviation, maritime, um, but in the things where we've already got those policies, it's rolling it out, it's recognizing that the early adopters have done their thing, it's recognizing as well that industry has really picked up. You know, I'm constantly impressed with the figures from the SMMT about um, vehicles with a plug. I think it's now we're up to one in six cars sold has a plug. I think it's fantastic the way that manufacturers are following on from the Prime Minister's policy plans. And we're leading the world. Absolutely. At COP26, that was so clear to have 200 countries join with us. And, you know, so many countries and manufacturers sign up to what we had set out on a global stage so proudly. But we couldn't do it if we didn't have the manufacturers, the local authorities, the people buying the cars and society being so enthusiastic about the need to decarbonize our country. Uh, it's amazing to hear you talk about the role um, that you're doing, um, such an important role. Um, and I completely agree with you. Like we've done a lot of the strategizing around this um, over the course of sort of 2019 to, to 2021. We've got all the plans now. It is, as you say, about um, the rubber hits the road. Sorry, the pardon the pun, but we need to actually drive delivery of of these policies. So it's um, yeah, very refreshing to hear you um, talk um, in, in the way you are. Well, and you, you mentioned COP twenty six. Sorry, Richard, because industry wants to do it. I have been consistently impressed with the meetings and visits I've had with industry. They are really pushing us. They're asking us to put that legislation in place. They're asking us to seed fund where, you know, there really isn't commercial viability, particularly on research and development and demonstration. And that's important because we need to bring, you know, the public with us. We need to bring everybody with us and having those demonstration areas and projects is really important. But you're moving on to COP, which is brilliant. Let's talk yeah, about Yeah, so I assume, I assume you were there. Um, I was. You were, yeah. So I suppose my, my questions around COP, it, to me, it seemed like overall um, a real um, success and with some very, um, some very significant um, outcomes. I'd, I'd like to ask you what you thought the most notable outcomes were. I'd also like to ask one other question, though, which is it feels like there was less there of significance on the transport side. So there was a lot on coal. There was a lot on carbon pricing and so forth. There, there were lots of big picture policies. Um, but a bit less on the transport side. Is that fair or, or, or do you disagree with that? Um, uh, yeah, I, I do disagree, actually. And I think it's also worth noting that, you know, that was um, the beginning of a relationship for me with many of those global leaders. I've gone on to um, meet with kind of counterparts in California. I've been out to, to Hamburg as well. Um but I would say that, you know, the last two years have seen a massive accelerating progress on the global transition. Um, and on Transport Day on particular, which I think was the 10th of November, it was a Wednesday. I was there. Uh, it was a really busy few days, actually. And we were successful in showcasing increased global momentum and UK leadership to speed up the transition to zero emission vehicles in particular. So that was a real highlight because... 39 countries, six major vehicle manufacturers, including 
GM, Ford, Mercedes, BYD, Volvo, uh, and Jaguar Land Rover. Um, 46 cities, states and regions, 28 fleets and 13 investors jointly set out their determination for all new car and van sales to be zero emission by 2040 globally and 2035 in leading markets. That was my highlight. Um, also, we had um, we made progress on a Clyde Bank declaration around shipping and sustainable aviation fuels as well. But when you think about Transport Day providing that galvanizing moment for the harder to abate maritime and aviation sectors, we had about 24 countries representing half of global aviation emissions actually committing to work to support increased ambition and action and 22 countries committed to support the establishment of green shipping corridors, which are um, zero emission shipping routes between two ports. So I think some incredible progress was made actually. The, the goodwill, the relationships that were made between my counterparts was incredibly important. I think my colleague, Alex Sharma, um, president did a sterling job of bringing everybody together and yeah, around a third of the global car market is now covered by manufacturer commitments to phase out polluting vehicles and that's up from probably zero at the start of this year but it is vital that we continue the momentum and the COP presidency being in the UK established the uh, zero emission vehicle transition council which is bringing together governments of the world's largest car markets to work together to accelerate the transition. We were really delighted that we were able to publish such an ambitious work plan for the council in 2022. And it was brilliant to have the US as part of this. They're actually joining the UK as co-chairs, which was fantastic. No, fantastic. There's a lot in what you've said. So uh, perhaps uh, I I think some of this didn't get as much coverage, actually, on the transport side as, as some of the other um, headline policies. So, um, yeah. And well, I wanted I to ask you've given me an opportunity to talk about it because it no, really it's great. was a landmark year for transport decarbonisation in the UK, I think. It really is. And, and the UK's COP26 presidency, I think, as well, has, has been a huge moment for the UK's um, leadership um, on these issues. I think overall we've done a, 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 actually an amazing job of that with, with Alex Sharma at, at the helm of, of that. And I wanted to ask you just a few more questions. I'm conscious of your time. Um, well, one final sort of question before we start the wrap up is is really what all of this means for your constituents. Obviously, you represent an area, part of the UK, and um, which you've talked a lot about on uh, as through the discussion. But w- what does all this mean for, for your constituents? W- what does it mean for the levelling up agenda um, in the UK? Yeah, it's really close to my heart. One of the things I really wanted to change when I came into Parliament in 2017 was an amendment to the Green Book that the Treasury used, where I felt that population was scoring far higher than potential. So areas where you've got densely populated towns and cities were always going to secure that government funding that could improve things. And areas like mine, which are uh, more sparsely populated, but with great challenges and also market failure, wouldn't be able to take advantage. So the change um, in that that green book and the whole attitude around levelling up um, was, again, I think, very much down to the prime minister in recognising 
that, you know, talent is spread around this country, but opportunity is not. Whenever he used to say that, I used to think he was talking about communities like mine. And then came the levelling up agenda. And I think decarbonisation offers a huge industrial opportunity. It's a once in a generation chance to increase growth and future prosperity using electricity and green hydrogen and sustainable low carbon fuels and pedal power uh, to invest in new jobs across the country. And it's a catalyst, you know, the, there is a need for urgent action, which is a catalyst, but it will also deliver a better, cleaner local environment and really modernize our economy. We're already seeing the industrial benefits of this with Nissan and Envision uh, creating brilliant businesses, supporting communities in Northeast England. Um, and Stellantis, also in the north, you know, has announced last year that its first dedicated EV factory in Europe will be in Ellesmere Port, Cheshire. This kind of investment will absolutely transform Stellantis's um, existing car plants that from 2022 will produce a new electric van. It's that kind of thing that will really help to transform communities like mine, but also to do it in a way that builds on our industrial heritage. And that's important for me. It's about being proud of our past and energized for the future, which is the, the mantra of my local council, Copeland Borough Council, but it's absolutely right. And, you know, we've got to do it in a way that um, cherishes the combustion engine. That's a, a common conversation I have. Um, because remembering all what our industrial heritage has enabled us to do, and the work that our grandparents have done in getting us here. We've got to continue to appreciate that, but also to innovate. And communities like mine are at the heart of innovation. We are pioneers. And I want to support that with brilliant apprenticeships, with fantastic training and retraining opportunities right across the country, but particularly in post-industrial towns. Absolutely. No, I couldn't, couldn't agree more with it, with everything you've said. Okay, so just as we come towards the end of the podcast, um, we move to a section um, that we, we often use to, to wrap things up, um, which is called overrated and underrated, um, which is where I'm going to ask you about two or three things um, within the transport sphere. And I just like your off the cuff, off the cuff response. Do you think these concepts, these technologies are overrated or underrated? And uh, it doesn't need to be a long, long answer. Um, okay. The first one is plug-in hybrids, overrated or underrated? Absolutely. Um, well, it's a transitional thing, isn't it? I don't think we'll need them in the future. However, they have been, you know, Toyota in particular, absolutely brilliant for addressing people's range anxiety. And I think we will also be using hybrid trains, bimodal trains, um, so I would say they are underrated and um, we will see a lot more of this kind of bimodal technology um, in freight, perhaps, and certainly in um, public transport, in buses as well. But I think for cars, we are moving more towards battery electric vehicles, you know, um, without the yeah, need we'll to move use fossil them. fuel. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good answer. And um, second one is 
what I think are referred to as e-trucks. So these are the where we have trucks with overhead lines for um for so electric trucks, but with overhead lines for for charging. I'm explaining it to myself and listeners rather than you, Trudy, because I'm sure you know what they are. <laughs> no, no, we absolutely, and it's horses for courses. Yes, I think we will have that, but not in all areas. It just won't work. Um, so gosh, underrated and overrated, it's really harsh. It's binary. That's the that's the that's the beauty of it underrated i'm gonna to have to say that because there's a real opportunity there but also there's a great opportunity for hydrogen fuel cells and actually battery electric um bin wagons i've got an impending visit when our government rules allow to see some electric bin wagons and i just can't wait yeah and as as kind of in, indicative in your in your answers to these questions there are still many technological options in in all these areas so it's it's kind of hard to choose it okay the last very one <laughs> very difficult to reduce it to my binary question the last one um so is rail freight there's often a lot of talk about this about how we can shift more freight towards um rail so do you think that's overrated or underrated underrated absolutely underrated um, I think we're going to be doing a huge amount of work in this area. You know, my colleague, um, Wendy Morton, who's recently taken on the responsibility for rail and department for transport, will do an excellent job with rail. And my role with the decarbonisation of freight is really excited as well. Underrated. And I tell you what else is underrated. Jobs in freight. We talk about needing more women truck drivers and it's brilliant that the Chancellor's uh, supporting you know the improvement of truck stops with a 32 million pound fund but jobs in freight and logistics are absolutely fascinating i didn't know so many highly skilled careers existed until i got this job freight across the board is underrated it needs to change and i want to encourage more women to get into freight and logistics because it's a really exciting rewarding career that includes being a truck driver, but is oh so much more. So Trudy, um, thanks so much um, for joining me on the podcast. You're, the way you've talked about this whole topic, this shows your absolute enthusiasm for your for the topic and for your role. Um, and it's such an important role, as you have said and emphasised in, in now delivering these policies and delivering um, the change. And um, so it sounds like the team around you as well is all doing a, a fantastic job. So, so keep up um, the great work. Um, and I also um, hope to, to keep in touch with you. But thanks again for joining the podcast. Oh, thank you, Richard. It's been an absolute pleasure. And you're completely right. I can't do this alone. I'm well supported by a fantastic team in the department and by industry and with the push from society. But it's brilliant to be able to speak with you, Richard, and have uh, an audience to share what I love doing day in, day out. Thank you. That was Richard Howard, Research Director at Aurora, talking to Trudy Harrison, MP, Parliamentary Under Secretary of State at the UK Department for Transport. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.